John 11, beginning at verse 45. This is God's holy and infallible word. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. And so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. That's God's word for us tonight. This morning, remember, we were in what follows, which is chapter 12. But tonight what we're doing is we're picking up, this is a piece, this last section of of chapter 11, we've skipped over this until now. And if you remember, most of chapter 11 is about the raising of Lazarus. That was a couple Sunday mornings ago. And that miracle of the raising of Lazarus is the pinnacle of the seven miracles that John chooses to record for us in his gospel. Jesus made the blind man see, he healed a sick boy, he caused a lame man to walk, he turned water into wine, fed thousands of people with the little boy's lunch, walked on water. Those are the six previous miracles in John. All incredible miracles. But then Jesus does something more incredible than all of those. He raises to life a man who was dead in the tomb for four days. And we saw a couple weeks ago how this miracle shows us the glory of God. Remember, it talks about the glory of God at the beginning of the miracle and at the end. And we saw the glory of God, especially as we see God's love, God's power, God's sovereignty all happening there. All those attributes of God that are for the benefit of us, God's children. I don't know if you, you noticed it a couple of weeks ago, perhaps not. It, I, it took, it, I didn't notice it at first either, but it's very obvious when you do. But the raising of Lazarus ends very abruptly. And, and if you have your Bibles open, you can look at that, verses 43 and 44. If not, uh, just listen. Um, when it says, and Jesus had said this, He called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And that's it. Then, then it's a whole other section. Nothing about, you know, it would have been so touching to hear about Mary and, and Martha hugging their brother, their tears of joy, hugs all around, everything that would come from that. But, but, but John just stops it. He ends it. And it seems that John has somewhere he wants to take us. He wants to move forward from there. He says, therefore, in the beginning of our text, therefore, many of the Jews. And that means that this is where he's moving to what we're looking at. But it also means the therefore connects it to Lazarus. So he wants us to read this section with that miracle in mind. It's as if he wants us to read what we read with Lazarus come out still ringing in our ears. Here's what I think is going on. Jesus has given us this most ultimate display yet of God's love and God's power in raising Lazarus. And, and I think one way of looking at this is it's as if Jesus has drawn a line in the sand. It's like all led up to this. The first 11 chapters of John, they tell us about Jesus' ministry, his teaching, his miracles, but from here on out, he's going to be headed to the cross. The culmination of his coming and his work. The next chapter starts the final week before his death and resurrection. And Jesus has now made a statement. He's drawn a line in the sand, and I think it does three things according to our text. I think it it reveals a great divide in all of history. It stimulates dark satanic forces to respond. And third, it orchestrates a glorious outcome. So we're going to walk through this text pretty carefully tonight with those three in mind. Jesus' line in the sand, first of all, reveals a divide in all of history. At the beginning of our text, therefore many of the Jews put their faith in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees. That's verses 45 and 46. John immediately takes us to the point of his whole gospel that people would believe in Jesus. And a lot of people did. But something else happened too. Right at the same time, some other people went to the Pharisees. In other words, not everybody believed. Some wanted to get Jesus, and so they reported to the Pharisees. This divide between those who believe and those who don't and who are opposing Jesus is getting sharper and sharper as the Gospel of John goes forward. And it's, it's culminating in the raising of the dead of Lazarus and what Jesus' enemies are planning here in this text. And what's revealed here is not something unusual or out of the ordinary in the history of the world. This is the norm. This is how it is in life 
on this earth. This divide is in all of history from the fall, and it will be until Jesus' second coming. In the beginning, everything was very good. And then Satan came to God's good creation in the form of a serpent. He tempted Adam and Eve. They listened to the snake and fell into sin. And then we read what God says afterwards in Genesis 3.15 to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. That's where the battle line was drawn. And we see that line, that divide throughout the whole Old Testament. We see this battle line in the Amalekites and other people who were out to destroy the people of Israel. Haman, in the book of Esther, tried to wipe out the seed of the woman, but he didn't succeed and neither did anyone else before or after him. God brought forth his son, the Savior, the seed of the woman in the fullness of time, and even then... Satan was at work. Herod tried to kill the baby Jesus, but he failed. The people running to tell the Pharisees in verse 46 are part of the opposition to God and his son and God's plan and God's people. John has been talking about the darkness and the light, and that's another way to talk about these opposing forces this great divide in all of history. My daughter Olivia has been working on an Ephesians project for school, and and we read there, and I saw it was part of her project, the armor of God. And I was wondering if maybe you could come up and share just a little bit. I didn't, this is just unplanned. I'm joking. I'm totally joking. I saw her like, okay, Our text, and I think this is why this came, came to mind because I saw this in her project, which she handed in on Friday. Our text shows why God's people need the armor of God. What's it for? Well, there is a divide. There's a war being waged between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. This is why you, my friends, here, you need the armor of God. Are you wearing it? Are you putting it on? One word we use to talk about all of this sometimes is a word I've used before here. It's called, it's the antithesis. And that means ultimately one, one of the things that refers to is that ultimately someone is either for Christ or against him, with him or apart from him. And, and sometimes I wonder, and I don't wonder, I, I know that because I know my own, myself and, and we have a tendency to get too laid back, too comfortable. And we forget we're not in peacetime according to the Bible, the way the Bible describes it. This isn't peacetime. This isn't put down your weapons, put down your shield time. We're in war. There are enemies of God. There are enemies of the church. There is the antithesis. We need the armor of God. So don't let up your guard. There is an enemy 
And our enemy would like nothing better than, than to take you down or at least trip you up. Take one of your children. Disrupt a church like ours that's seeking with all our might to proclaim the light. And we're trying to live in the light. And we're trying to share the light. Satan would like nothing more than to disrupt that any way he can. Secondly, tonight, Jesus' line in the sand stimulates the forces of darkness to respond. Jesus reveals God's glory and the full capacity of his power and love in the raising of Lazarus. And then immediately, Satan mobilizes in response through the Sanhedrin and through the high priest Caiaphas. The Sanhedrin were the high court of the Jews. It consisted of 71 people. Based on the reports about what Jesus did, a meeting was called to discuss this. And we have a a summary of that discussion, especially in verses 47 and 48. The concern especially is that they're kind of concerned about themselves and their own position there, right? The concern is that the Romans will take away the Sanhedrin's political power. Rome was in control ultimately. Israel was an occupied country at the time of Jesus. But they allowed the Sanhedrin to rule the people under them, Rome. But the Sanhedrin had a lot of power under Rome. And the worry was that if everyone starts following Jesus, Rome's going to think the Sanhedrin don't have things under control, that there's this political rebellion going on under the Sanhedrin's watch. And so Rome would, would take away the Sanhedrin's place here and, and so forth. We, you can bet this was a pretty intense and harsh discussion. You get a, a picture of it here, but historians tell us that the Sanhedrin wasn't a nice group of guys in their deliberations. They, were, they, they could be kind of even savage in how they talked. There would be strong words, unkind things. I haven't been on the floor of Congress, but the impression you get how things have developed between our political parties and sort of the, the, uh, the atmosphere there is very, um, yeah. So maybe it's a little bit like that. We, we see that especially in how it's crazy. I mean, Caiaphas is the leader of these guys, and you see how he addresses his colleagues? You know nothing at all. That's like a little hint, I think, of the harshness of the deliberations. Everyone's at a loss, but he's got the answer, and he's got it in verses 49 and 50. It's kind of like, come on, dummies, it's so obvious. We've got to kill this Jesus. That's the only way. We read about Caiaphas and other places in the Gospels, and the picture we get is that he was crafty, he was cunning, he was evil. And he's kind of like, as the high priest, sort of like the godfather of the group. It's like, all right, here's what we're going to do. we got to get rid of this guy. For the sake of the Jewish nation, he says, we've got to kill Jesus. Problem solved. And without question, we're dealing with, this is a dark, dark meeting, a dark, dark discussion and plot. We're dealing with extreme wickedness. And, and what's, what's crazy, if you think about it, is 
the Sanhedrin, no one is denying that Jesus performed miracles. It's not like they're questioning in that. They know he's doing these amazing things. They know he raised someone from the dead after four days, and yet they choose to ignore that, and they put themselves and their position and their power first. You know, sometimes we think if only Jesus were alive today and he was, did not ascend into heaven but was like here in the flesh, well, then it'd be easy. Everyone would believe like us. But that's totally not true, right? There were all kinds of people who saw Jesus when he lived on this earth. They knew he performed miracles. They saw those miracles, and yet they rejected him. They rejected him. And this plan to kill Jesus is really the culmination of what Satan's plan was from the beginning. And that's to kill the seed of the woman. To stop the one who would make things right between people and God and save his people from their sin. The plan of the evil one is moving forward. It's culminating now in Caiaphas and the Jewish leaders. From that day on, they plotted to take his life. Just one more thought tonight. The line in the sand also orchestrates a glorious outcome, thank the Lord. At this darkest time, with the darkest of plots hatched, John shows us something remarkable. The high priest who made a terribly evil decision would actually become a prophet. Verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord. Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, like Caiaphas said, but it would be in a different sense than he intended. One way nation is used in the Bible is to refer to God's people not just the political nation, as Caiaphas meant it. Romans 11 talks about all Israel being saved. And that's talking about all of God's people. And so, unwittingly, Caiaphas has spoken here the very core of the gospel, the very heart of our salvation, the gospel in a nutshell, that Jesus would die so the nation, God's people, would not perish. Jesus would die so we'd be saved. This evil man gives us the very essence of the gospel. And that is how our God works. All things work together for those who love him. God uses even evil for his purposes. Just like God used Balaam, that false prophet long ago, He's using Caiaphas here. And we got the most evil plot ever thought up, and God twists it to do the greatest thing ever, save his people from their sin. Verse 52, it goes on and it talks about Jesus gathering his people everywhere as the mission of the church would go forward. Salvation, and that's just talking about salvation would start with the Jews, and then it'd go on to include many among the Gentiles too, like like you and me. Most of us are Gentiles. Maybe, maybe someone here has Jewish blood. I don't know. But for the most part, we're Gentiles here. This is very, it's very similar to John 10, 16, where Jesus says, 
they will listen to my voice and become one flock. So this is talking about Jesus gathering his people from everywhere. So Caiaphas thought that his plan would stomp out the cause of Jesus for good. His plan does exactly the opposite. His plan to kill Jesus would be the highest pinnacle of the cause of Jesus Christ. The crucifixion of Jesus, which would result in the salvation of his people. Jesus might have said, if, if he were talking with Caiaphas here, he might have said what Joseph said to his brothers back in Genesis 50. It's the same thing. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good and for the salvation of many people. And so today, too, the providence of our God continues to prevail always. The sources of evil will be confounded by the wisdom of God. Maybe not always right away. Maybe not always from our vantage point in our life. We don't always see it as much as we want to, but we can be assured that ultimately this is the case. We read in verse 54 and following that Jesus withdrew to Ephraim. It wasn't because he was scared. This had to do with God's continued orchestration of events. Jesus would be taken and arrested and beaten and he would die on his terms when the time was right. And the time wasn't right yet, but it was coming very soon. I just want to conclude with Uh, Two takeaways from these three big ideas in our text. Number one, the antithesis is real. Be ready. Be prepared. That means evil is real. Satan is real. He's hatching plots. He looks for people in situations in which he might work. He looks to get a foothold in a church or in a situation through someone who has his or her guard down. With the armor of God, with the sword of the Spirit, with the belt of truth, and all the rest that Olivia can tell you all about, with all of that, we can resist the devil's schemes and lies and protect our church, the cherished bride of Jesus, protect our precious homes, and protect our own hearts too. Number two, Despite the war and the battles and the struggles and our own personal failures too sometimes, God will triumph. If even the most evil thing imaginable can be used for good, then all of these lesser evils by comparison that you and I deal with day after day after day from our sicknesses, to our losses, to our own sin, to the hard toil of our work week after week, to challenges of raising a family, growing old, and all the rest. All of these challenges too. Whatever challenge you might have, God has it in His hand. It's going to be taken care of too. And in fact, 
it already has in a very real sense through the power of the cross and through the great grace of our God. And so we're called to respond to this line in the sand, being sure that we're on the right side of the line of this divide in history, that we are with Jesus. And when we are with Jesus and have believed in him and accept, then we live on guard in a sense, aware of the devil's schemes as the Paul, Apostle Paul calls us to be. And we also entrust our life to the care of our sovereign God who is working out all things for your good and mine.